This week on Flyover from NPR News, we're going there. The politics of white resentment. I'm Carrie Miller, and it seems like there are a lot of zero-sum games in our American psyche right now. When a person of color gets into college, does it mean affirmative action kept a white person out? Or how about this? When a football player protests racism during the national anthem, why do people insist he's taken his right to free speech one step too far? Politicians have figured out how to tap into white resentment and sometimes stir it up themselves. So how does this play out where you live? Call 1-83-FLYOVER-1 and Flyover starts after this news. Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover from Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota, a show about who we are in turbulent times. Each Sunday through the fall, we're looking at different dimensions of American identity and how it influences our approach to some of the most pressing issues of the day. Now, this is a national call-in show, and I know that the best insights in these flyover conversations will come from you. So I hope you'll call in starting right now. Today, understanding how white resentment continues to shape our political debates and divisions, even the debate going on right now around the NFL and the national anthem. More on that in a moment. This will be an open and a candid conversation. I think it's going to require more than a knee-jerk reaction. There might be some uncomfortable moments. I'd ask you to keep an open mind and give this some deeper thought. Do too many white Americans believe that the necessary economic and cultural gains of Americans of color come somehow at cost to themselves? That this is a zero-sum gain? And do we see white resentment and reaction to it emerge in some unexpected places, including on the football field? If you're an American of color, what do you think? If you're a white American, what's your conclusion? Call in right now at 1-83-FLYOVER-1. That's 1-833-596-8371. I'm starting the conversation in a place, St. Louis, Missouri, that's experienced how volatile these unresolved questions can be. Jason Rosenbaum is the political reporter for St. Louis Public Radio. And I asked him whether this newest acquittal of a white police officer in the shooting of an African-American feels familiar. Absolutely. I know that the circumstances have been different, but even the feelings I've had covering these two situations as a reporter have been eerily similar. And and the situations, while again, not exactly the same, still involve a white police officer shooting a black man and the justice system deciding not to render any consequences or punishments towards the police officer. Now, there may be very valid reasons why that occurred both to Darren Wilson and Ferguson and to Jason Stockley in St. Louis. But for many people of color here who have had major distrust of the police, um, they see this most recent situation as as part and parcel with a broken relationship. Jason, I, I noticed that Anthony Lamar Smith's mother said justice wasn't served 
I can never be at peace. And and I thought, are you having conversations with many Missourians and St. Louis residents of color who would say, that's how it was at Ferguson, that's how it was before Ferguson, and nothing has changed with the criminal justice system? To put it into context, there were a number of other states that adopted pretty comprehensive overhauls of criminal justice law after Michael Brown's shooting death. And I'm not just talking about states that are quote unquote blue. I'm talking about states like Texas. I'm talking about states like Colorado funding things like body cameras, making sure that uh, police shootings were put into databases, and also uh, making sure that training, especially training dealing with 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 bias toward race was mandated in Missouri none of those things were passed on a state legislative level the only thing that ended up passing um, from the state legislature was an overhaul of the municipal court system that primarily affected cities with with african-american leadership it wasn't a situation where largely white and wealthy communities that also have documented problems with policing people of color were affected by these these laws. So you're a political reporter. What explanation do you have for what you've just described? Other states taking a lesson from Ferguson and these many, many other incidents around the country and Missouri state legislators not apparently feeling like there was much to learn. I think that there's several reasons for that. One could be pretty basic, that the proposals just aren't well-received by the legislators. An example of that is there's been a push by both Republicans and Democrats to bring in an outside prosecutor whenever there's a police-involved killing. But Republicans and Democrats have brought up logistical problems with that. For instance, if there was a police-involved killing in St. Louis and you had to bring in a prosecutor from an adjoining place, you would bring in St. Louis County Prosecutor Bob McCullough the same prosecutor that handled the Michael Brown case, who many believe couldn't be fair hmm. because his his father, who was a police officer, was, was killed in the line of duty. There are also structural problems. The Missouri legislature is is very Republican. They have super majorities and it has become increasingly popular for Republican politicians in the state and the nation to have this posture where they're seen as favorable toward law enforcement. And they're, they're fearful that adopting a lot of the, the policy changes that are being brought up through these protest movements would make them seem anti-police in a certain way. And I think that the third thing that some legislators of color have brought up mm-hmm. is, is the Missouri legislature is largely white. And I, I think that there just is a disconnect between the, the largely suburban and rural legislators that – that essentially run the General Assembly and and the legislators of color who are bringing these concerns forward. I'm not saying that they, they've had no success. I, I don't want to be too overgeneral, but I, I think that that can't be, be overlooked, that the racial composition of the legislature is what it is. One of the stories that I read from St. Louis Public Radio, this Democratic state representative said, they see the numbers. I, I think he means the political white power structure. They know that the demographics of America is changing. And so to maintain power is to get rid of the democratic change. Is that a view that is shared by a number of voters of color in Missouri who fear that this is yet another way to disenfranchise them? I think that even after Ferguson, for example, 
you saw a pretty fierce pushback among the the local African American um, political class to what would be considered reforms by many reformers, and including like tr- making it more difficult for uh, cities to get ticket revenue, which I mm, think most right. of us would agree is is a pretty good idea. What wasn't really being discussed openly by policymakers was that those policies primarily affected communities that are are run by African Americans and probably would have allowed would have forced those communities to dissolve. Therefore, a large part of St. Louis would not have black representation on a local level. From a statewide perspective, it's always been very difficult for African Americans to get a pretty significant foothold on a representational level. They've always been a voting block for primarily the Democratic Party, but Missouri has never had a statewide official of color. We had an African American woman run against Jay Ashcroft for Secretary of State. She lost decisively. She might have lost regardless because Donald Trump won this state by 19 percentage points, but it was pretty clear that she wasn't supported in the way that, you know, white male politicians, even in the Democratic Party, were supported. Did I hear you right when you said there has never been a person of color to hold statewide office in the state of Missouri? You heard me correctly, yes. And that means like governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, attorney general, treasurer. That is St. Louis Public Radio reporter Jason Rosenbaum on how white resentment and racial divides are affecting St. Louis. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to Flyover. It's a show about who we are in turbulent times. And today we're taking on the idea of white resentment. Are too many white Americans aggrieved because they believe that Americans of color are reaping too many advantages? Can we see that today in the debate over the NFL and the national anthem. Here's the phone number, 1-83-FLYOVER-1, 833-596-8371, to Whitney in Freedom, Wisconsin. And Whitney, thank you so much for uh, holding the line. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm a black female engineer. Mm-hmm. I'm in a majority um, white male environment, and I grew up in a majority white community, and I've kind of been able recently to identify with some of, I guess, it kind of seems like the finger is pointed at the white man for everything that's taking place right now. And I try to make, you know, the time to tell, you know, my white friends or whatever, like, I see where you're coming from. And I know that you're good. And I know that you're not all bad. But I noticed the opposite is true of them. They're not able to put themselves in my shoes. Like, I constantly have to explain that Black Lives Matter is not a supremacy group. They're fighting for equality. They don't think that their lives matter more. They just want their lives to matter, period. And so I'm able to kind of step back and say, hey, all these white people that I know, they're not all bad, but they have a harder time um, kind of making the connection that I make for them. And it's frustrating because the the conversation normally goes to a very defensive place on their side immediately. It also sounds like because, as you said at the beginning, you're a black woman in a workplace that where there are a lot of white men that you end up kind of being the translator for the, the, the interpreter of what's happening culturally. That's a difficult place to be, too. It is. I often will say that I, you know, oh, I don't really have an opinion about that because in some uh, 
situations, it's somebody's instigating or they're being antagonistic. And I know that my thoughts, my feelings, and my emotions are going to be wasted in that in that moment should I bring it up. You know what I mean? Like, it's not usually productive for me to even comment on the uh, conversation. You hesitate to step into that discussion, even though you do have an opinion. It's just you have to calculate yeah. whether it's worth giving it or not and getting into that. Right. Or making people feel uncomfortable, which later on I can think about, like, wow, why do I have to worry about hurting people's feelings when I speak about racial injustice? Why am I so concerned with everybody else's comfort level? Whitney, I'm so glad to have your call to start the conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'd like to hear from you. This is Flyover, and we're talking about white resentment. Are many white Americans aggrieved because they believe that Americans of color are reaping too many advantages Is that some of what's playing out right now with what President Trump is tweeting about the NFL, with what's going on on the football field with the players and the national anthem? I want to hear from you. It's 1-83-FLY-OVER-1, 1-833-596-8371. Talk to me about it on Twitter, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I, M-P-R, hashtag Flyover Radio. I know not every public radio station can play our program live, but we do want to hear from you. Join this conversation on Twitter. Use the hashtag FlyoverRadio or share your experience on our live blog at flyoverradio.org or leave us a message at 1-83-FLYOVER-1. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Flyover from Minnesota Public Radio News in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's a show about who we are in turbulent times. We're taking on the idea of white resentment today, the way it emerges in our economy, our politics, our culture. I mean, look at the debate going on right now in the NFL. President Trump says it's unacceptable and unpatriotic to kneel during the national anthem. Many players and coaches and owners see this as a way to protest injustice in America, especially racially divided uh, injustice. Are too many white Americans aggrieved because they believe that Americans of color are reaping too many advantages, stepping in where they don't belong, initiating protests that make Americans uncomfortable. I want to hear from you today. One eight three flyover one. That's one eight three three five nine six eight three seven one. And I'm on Twitter at Carrie. It's K E R R I M, as in Minnesota P R. And then use the hashtag. Flyover Radio. Our guest today, Carol Anderson, is a professor of African-American history at Emory University and the author of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. And she's with us today from Atlanta, Georgia. Carol, welcome. Really good to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Carrie. Victor Tan Chen is with us. He's assistant professor of sociology at Virginia Commonwealth and the author of Cut Loose, Jobless and Hopeless in an Unfair Economy. And he's with us today from Richmond, Virginia. And Victor, welcome to you. Really good to have you on the show as well. Great to be with you, Carrie. Carol, on the surface, I'm going to guess that many Americans see this NFL national anthem thing as a debate about respect and symbols of patriotism, the flag, the anthem. 
Do you see an element of what we're talking about today, an element of white resentment in this as well? Oh, absolutely. And you see it in just the way that um, people talk about, can you believe that these millionaires are protesting? They They are so ungrateful. And so begin to even think about that, that people who are putting their bodies on the line, people who are risking uh, CTE, uh, people who have worked hard all of their lives to get to that point are seen as being ungrateful because they have been given something. They have been given their millions when, in fact, they have earned it. Um, And so you hear the resentment there that they are just supposed to be there to entertain predominantly white audiences uh, with their bodies and not have a conscience and not have a voice. Victor, I want to grab a call here before I come to you to Patrick in South Bend, Indiana. Patrick, it sounds like you're watching what's happening with the NFL today and these protests. How are you thinking about it? Well, actually, I'm feeling kind of disturbed by the the recent trends that I I kind of thought that it was only going to be Colin Kaepernick who was, you know, going to go rogue and he's protesting uh, the national anthem for his own personal or or political reasons. But it's kind of struck me as odd that so many teams have stepped up to it. I I mean, I thought that football was like an American sport. I, I personally never saw race in the national anthem or in, or in just standing in quiet reverence as, you know, the flag is flown and the anthem is played. So I really don't understand why I guess these, these teams feel it necessary to stay in the locker room. I mean, I suppose kneeling or locking arms is fine, but to just blatantly stay in the locker room seems a bit too disrespectful for me. What do you, what do you see in this Victor in the way that there are, I think there's a subtext here where there are appropriate ways to register your dismay that injustice still exists in America and will tell you NFL players what those appropriate ways are. What do you what do you see in this? Well, Carrie, this fits with a long tradition of political protests and athletics and all spheres of uh, American life. Uh, so I don't really see it as something new in that sense. Um, I think that uh, the NFL uh, is such a huge industry uh, in this country that uh, the um, protests that have happened there are especially resonant and are hitting all corners of American uh, society, right? Uh, Because all of America uh, watches the NFL. And so I think that, uh, you know, it struck a chord because of that media presence. But, you know, you look at uh, uh, past uh, Olympics, past uh, other competitions in American uh, sporting. And, and uh, you know, this has always been a chord uh, or an arena where people have voiced uh, opposition to, you know, things like segregation, things like racism. You know, I, I remember the the activist uh, and entertainer Harry Belafonte when Colin Kaepernick began this, and I think that was in 2016, Uh, And I went back to find this quote from Belafonte, and he said, when a black voice is raised in protest to oppression, those who are comfortable with our oppression are the first to criticize us for daring to speak out against it. Does does that seem relevant to you, Carol, in this moment? Oh, absolutely. Um, Because you think about it. When you have people out in the streets, then it's like, why are they protesting on the streets and blocking traffic? And so you're, in fact, seeing legislation saying run them over because black people aren't protesting in the right way. Um, When you take a knee, then 
you're not protesting in the right way. Martin Luther King dealt with the same thing, and that is what led to the letter from the Birmingham jail, um, is that when you do, when black people do raise their voices about the injustices, then that destabilizes a very comfortable narrative about an equal opportunity America, about an America where justice is blind, um, about an America where all you have to do is work hard, keep your nose clean, do everything that you're supposed to do, and you too will succeed. And that's the ideal. I mean, we talk a lot about the mythology of America, Carol, on this show. That's exactly what it is, what you've just described. Exactly. And so then... How do you then, um, and and so what be, what what happens then is that this protest about the consistent police killings and the lack of a response from the justice system to those killings, even when the killings are videotaped, um, then leads to this moment where it challenges that narrative so profoundly that what becomes about the criminal justice system and racism then becomes linked in with the flag and the military. And so those leaps are absolutely um, almost Freudian in the way that talking about the injustice that African-Americans are facing and dealing with police um, who will gun them down when they are unarmed um, to you don't Uh, appreciate this country, you don't uh, appreciate the flag, you don't appreciate everything this nation stands for, is saying something really deeply about the role of African-Americans in this society. That's right. From Twitter here, a listener says, white resentment is realization that American dream and other myths of American exceptionalism are false. Despite privilege, whites are in pain. And to the phones to Vanessa in Las Vegas Hi, Vanessa. Thanks so much for waiting. What are you thinking about? Yes, hi. Um, so I'm the project founder of Force Trajectory Project, which is a long-term documentary project following the narratives of families affected by police violence. Uh-huh. And I also helped co-found the Families United for Justice, which is a growing collective of families uh, organizing and collect, uh, collectively and organizing for uh, political power, uh, families affected by police violence uh, across the nation. So I'm very grateful to be on this call. Thank you so much for taking it. Uh, my interest is in questioning the symbolism of, you know, what's happening with an NFL is, is very big. It's very important. Um, it's important for Americans to see that um, a mainly black sport um, that people are kneeling and, and, and in protest of, of what's happening across the nation. What I'm asking for activists and uh, football players and you know professors and you know political commentators to focus on also is to not forget the marginalization of the families' voices because what ends up happening a lot of the time is that while we're talking about police violence, the families are left on the sideline as victims. They're victimized, they're marginalized, and they're not focused upon. And actually, they have the most knowledge out of anybody about police violence, and they should be at the forefront of the struggle. Victor, do you see that happening, what Vanessa's describing there with the families of mostly men of color in these, yeah, well, uh, in I, these shootings? Go ahead. 
Well, let me get back to a point that an important point that Carol made uh, regarding the backlash um, from white America to some of the protests that we're seeing uh, right now. And I just wanted to make a point that, you know, it's it's a sad reality that um, a lot of Americans, both black and white and uh, people of color more generally, are not uh, partaking in this American dream, right? This idea that if you work hard, you can make it. And so yet, in spite of the fact that this is a problem in American society more broadly, that uh, good jobs are hard to come by, that, uh, you know, the kind of social safety net is not there for many American families, uh, still you have this kind of um, uh, resentment that's going between uh, the white middle class and the, uh, you know, the middle class of color and, and the working class versus the working class. It is in many ways a, a tragic, tragic circumstance that we um, are dealing with these broader problems of economic uh, opportunity and the lack thereof, and yet we are so divided on uh, these issues of race that have been with us throughout the history of this country. And I think that the situation now for, uh, especially for African-American men, is particularly uh, difficult um, given uh, trends in incarceration, given broader uh, economic trends that have shifted jobs away from uh, neighborhoods and communities where both uh, African-American men and uh, working-class white men as well uh, have uh, are, are living. So I think that uh, is a part of this broader story as well that is racial and economic. And Victor, this is why I've been using this phrase zero-sum gain because there seems to be a perception in some parts of America that if Americans of color get this, then I as a white American may have to give something up. And I wonder if you think some of that is embedded in this aggrievement that we see in some parts of the U.S., Yes, absolutely. Um, Arlie Hochschild, a sociologist at uh, UC Berkeley, wrote a book uh, recently, uh, Strangers in Their Own Land, where she interviewed uh, Tea Party supporters, white Tea Party supporters. And one of the narratives that came out, however uh, accurate or inaccurate, was that they felt that other people were cutting in line in front of them. And they, um, you know, maybe they didn't use specific language, but, you know, it, it was people of color, it was immigrants and so on, that were taking uh, an unfair advantage, they thought, through affirmative action, through government programs, and so on, right? That is the narrative. It's not true, you know, given the declines in, uh, uh, you know, welfare recipiency, given uh, these trends that are broadly affecting all Americans, um, but, you know, that is a narrative that a lot of uh, Americans have and, uh, you know, taps into this broader fear of big government that is, you know, so part of the American uh, belief system uh, uh, going back to uh, earliest days of individualism, right? I think that is part of what we're seeing there is uh, the, this kind of belief um, and also how 
um, media, um, thinking here of Fox News and other forms of political media, really tap into those fears and exaggerate them and expand upon them in very pernicious ways. And so I think uh, you have um, a, a situation where people are uh, being uh, diverted to these uh, issues, uh, this uh, this lack of reality, really, yeah. of, uh, of this uh, kind of decline that they see, Victor, or, let, or at least this unfair advantage. L- that they, let me uh, do see. this. I, I do want to be able to, because some of what you're saying is right on point with what some of our callers want to say here. Kamisha in Minneapolis called to say, white resentment is a pushback against the shattering of a dream of what America means. I think, Victor, you and Carol have both said that. A shattering of meritocracy. Now that black people are trying to inform everyone what they're going through, there's pushback. And here's Lisa in St. Louis, Missouri. Hey, Lisa, hi. Thanks for waiting. What are you thinking about? Um, I'm thinking about the future. (laughs) First of all, from St. Louis, it's pretty heated and divided here at the moment. I have... A 16-year-old son, um, we live on the, um, in the suburbs um, in a modest neighborhood, and he's been in school um, with a very diverse mix of kids his entire life. He has um, his best friends are uh, black, Asian, um, Russian immigrants, um, and I'm concerned about his take on all of this. We've had a lot of conversations over the last few years with Ferguson and now with the Stockley verdict. Um, and and I come from a, a fairly social liberal um, ideology, uh, but I don't try to just hammer that into my kids. I'm trying to teach them about acceptance and, and kindness and openness. And I fear that, that some of the response from younger white males like my son is to is, is seeing a pendulum kind of start to swing. They don't they're kind of a, is a disconnect because he's been in, you know, close contact and friendships and, and through school for years with with this group of friends mm-hmm. and um, is hearing a lot of the bashing, you know, against white of Amer- white America and I guess doesn't understand the direct correlation because his exact experience hasn't so much been that. Um, And I'm trying to figure out how to talk to him in ways that don't make him want to automatically rebel because I'm his mother um, against what I believe. Carol, step in here. I I think this is a really good question. And I hear true confusion in Lisa's voice here. What would you advise? Um, I would I would advise that what is important is that he understands the context. Um, Often, we look at our individual relationships and say, ah, that's it. But when we understand the context, so you think about St. Louis, there's a reason why there was the Jenkins decision in St. Louis, because 25 years after the Brown v. Board decision, the state of Missouri had still not implemented the Brown decision. Um, you look at the way that St. Louis City is separated from St. Louis County, and there is a racial reason for that. Um, So it is providing him the historical knowledge, the facts that he needs, because part of the reason, you know, and we've heard in these calls about a sense of defensiveness when because whites then take it personally. It's not about personal. It's about structural. 
And when we understand the structures, then we can begin to intervene in the conversation. So, for instance, the, the sense that affirmative action is, is about letting all of these unqualified minorities into to colleges, um, and f- when in fact the largest beneficiaries of affirmative action are actually males, and particularly white males. Um, it's about um, what happened after the, the, the economic meltdown, um, where in fact whites have begun to recover in terms of wealth, whereas African Americans have continued to lose in terms of wealth. When we're looking at these structures and we get the historical basis of it, we begin to understand how white resentment is predicated on um, false narratives. Carol, let's pick up the thought. Carol Anderson with us at Emory from Emory University and Victor Tan Chen with us from Virginia Commonwealth. It's a conversation today on Flyover Radio about white resentment. We've brought in this issue of the NFL and the debate going on right now. We've brought in economic and cultural issues here. I want to hear from you this morning about whether you see this in your community, Americans resenting this idea that Americans of color are reaping advantages. One eight three flyover one. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to Flyover Radio. Next week, we'll talk about the cost of creating American jobs. Taxpayers give a lot to lure big companies to fly over country. We'll talk with our partners at Wisconsin Public Radio, and we'll hear from you right here next week. We'll be back in a minute with more on white resentment. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Flyover from Minnesota Public Radio News in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's a show about who we are in turbulent times. We talk about American identity and a lot of different dimensions and facets today. White resentment. Carol Anderson with us from Emory University and the author of White Rage. Victor Tan Chen with us from Virginia Commonwealth and the author of Cut Loose. And hearing from you now on how this idea of white resentment emerges in our economy, our politics, our culture. I've mentioned the debate going on right now between the NFL and President Trump and whether Americans, too many Americans, perhaps in your community, are aggrieved because they believe that Americans of color are reaping too many advantages. one eight three flyover one one eight three three five nine six eight three seven one. And on Twitter, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, use the hashtag Flyover Radio, where a listener says, the honor of symbols, flags, songs, statues over people is disheartening. America is its people, not its symbols. And another listener says, as a U.S. Marine Corps vet, I see no disrespect at taking a knee, only disrespect from those that deny the First Amendment. Back to the phones here to Erica in Lake Elmo. Hi, Erica. Thanks so much for waiting. Hi. 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 Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I I totally believe that uh, uh, Trump's starting the fight with the NFL at the rally in Alabama was um, a dog whistle. What mm-hmm. concerns me even more than the race aspect is this: this is the second time in several weeks that this administration, uh, first through Huckabee with Jamil Harris from ESPN. And now Trump himself with the NFL, where they have called for private businesses, 
private corporations to fire employees that they deem not patriotic enough or not supportive enough of the president. And that is a scary place to go, because once you start down that road, when they run out of African-Americans to fire, who do you think they will go after next if they don't deem you appropriate in your behavior? Erica, I appreciate the call. Turning now to Norma in Rayford, North Carolina. Hey, Norma, hi. Glad you caught the show and you had a chance to call in. What are you thinking about? Well, I'm thinking I'm a, I'm a black woman, and never once have I received a job that should have been given to someone else. When I got that job, I earned it. I didn't have to be as good as my white counterpart. I had to be better in order to even be considered. And the resentfulness of them for me is returned because I know how hard I had to work to get what I have. I appreciate the call, Norma. Victor, is that something that um, many Americans of color understand and believe and something that perhaps white Americans don't understand very well and perhaps don't believe it when they hear it? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of um, miscommunication and and a lack of understanding uh, that occurs there. It's important to have a balanced perspective, Carrie, about where things are in terms of economic trends. Um, For the African-American community and people of color more broadly, uh, things in in many ways are are bad. Uh, Just look at in terms of wealth. Um, You know, the Mm -hmm. typical white family has 13 times the wealth of the typical African-American family, 10 times the wealth of the typical Hispanic family. I mean, there are real large racial disparities. That said, um, there are segments of the white community that are really hurting too. Uh, And there's a story here, I think that's really important to uh, emphasize, of relative decline, that white Americans haven't seen progress, unlike other racial groups, which over the past four decades have seen increases in, say, their wages, uh, whether you look at African-American men or Hispanic men or women more broadly as they've entered the labor force. But white men actually have seen um, stagnant wage growth over the last 40 years. And I think this really plays into the psychology, Carrie, because how people judge how they're doing is based on comparisons. How am I doing compared to how my parents did? How is my community doing? And do I think my kids will have a bright future? Well, if you ask Trump supporters, many of them had a very pessimistic view of the future. And I think this relative decline is really driving some of the uh, trends, some of the anger we see in this uh, country. And it exists at the same time that we see people of color in a lower position in absolute terms. There's still this kind of despair and anxiety among all racial groups, uh, even if uh, people of color are further down uh, the economic uh, ladder. Hey, Carol, this is interesting what Victor just said. And and, and I want to tease this out among, since he mentioned Trump voters, among, among mm-hmm. uh, President Trump's base and, uh, and other Republicans. Would white voters who think their race is relevant, relevant now these are These would be voters who see their white identity as relevant, but not people that I think we would call white supremacists. That's a different set of voters. But these people who believe that their race is relevant, are they people that believe that they are losing jobs to non-white Americans? Are they the people that Victor just described to say, 
if I'm not getting ahead, it's because somebody else is. It's it's because that African-American guy got the job and I didn't or got the raise and I didn't. How would you tease that out? Um, I would say that absolutely. It's the a recent poll that just came out. I think it was today that showed that Trump's approval rating had gone up. But when they started digging down into the numbers, they found that the only spot where it had gone up and it had went up by 11 percent were white males without a college degree. And when you begin to think about how what Trump has done to make that group really respond to him, Mm -hmm. um, you've got the DACA band. You've got the militarization of the police again. You've got the calls against Jamel um, Harris. You've got the, um, the, the, the blasting of the NFL. You've got all of these dog whistles that really aren't whistles anymore but barking um, that are saying, look, I feel you. I see you. I get you. And so regardless of how, frankly, incompetent the man is on all kinds of levels of being presidential, in terms of being responsive to playing to the chord of white male resentment. And he's he's just pitch perfect for them. Um, you saw it. Uh, there was an interview shortly after the election in Kentucky, and it was a a county that had 60 percent of the people were on Obamacare. Mm-hmm. And 82% had voted for Trump. And when, she, when the reporter talked to uh, whites in the area, they were really happy to finally have insurance and get their diabetes under control. Um, a man was up for a liver transplant. But then you kept talking more. And what they said was there was such a level of resentment about those other people who have better insurance than we do. And they don't even deserve it. And they don't have to pay as much as we do. That's white resentment. Uh, Jim called from Chicago to say, as a white man who grew up in Chicago, the African-American community should be talking about anarchy taking place there. My cousins are police. They went with an open mind. They get treated disrespectfully. Jen in Raleigh, North Carolina, called to say that she works with a diverse population. She absolutely believes that people are not aware of minority injustices until it affects them thinks that Black Lives Matter should use whatever means of protest they need to be heard. And to John in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Hi, John. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Good. How you doing? I'm a, I'm a Marine, ex, ex-Marine, but I'm always a Marine. Uh-huh. I support uh, the players' right to peacefully protest. That is their right. Uh, I guess I just don't understand the platform that they're using is a powerful platform, but ultimately it's self-defeating. Because as the ratings go down, the TV networks give the NFL less money. The stands don't sell as many tickets. So years down, they're going to start feeling it. It's going to hurt them in their salary. So I guess I just don't understand the platform. It's uh, it's kind of it's going to hurt them in the long run. And so, John, while we linger for just a second here back on the NFL, because that's kind of threaded through our conversation today, do you sense a – and this is something we talked about at the beginning – do you sense a – There are certain ways to protest, and we'll tell you what those ways are, and players, you're out of line, and we can't tolerate that. And do you sense a a, a racial and power element to that? 
Well, again, you know, I, I love everybody, and I don't think they're out of line. You know, if you shut down a freeway or an interstate commerce like that, that's a little different story. But I, I believe, you know, and I fought for it, everybody has a right to peacefully protest. Mm-hmm. As a Marine, you said. As a Marine. Good to have your call. To Janet, listening in Richmond, Virginia. Hi, Janet. Thanks so much for waiting. Hi, sure. I wanted to say that uh, regarding the previous caller, he's assuming that ratings are going to go down and this is going to be a problem. I envision a world where the knee, taking the knee becomes a new phrase, which means standing up for what you believe in. I don't see why people have such a hard time understanding this unless you factor in that power play you're talking about. I'm a little, I'm a white female. I'm a little disgusted with my white friends and colleagues who don't seem or don't want to grasp this concept because I don't think it's that hard, but I think they do resent it. And I love that phrase you're using today. It took me several years to understand white privilege and to accept that I have it. Um, and I think the term white resentment is very uh, adequate and very appropriate because I don't think it's real. I would like to see more people basing things on fact instead of, as you said, the dog whistles and the pseudo facts that um, agencies like Fox News string out there where I don't think they're true. And I, it's very upsetting to me that people have lost their ability to listen and absorb and sympathize with people who are experiencing very difficult situations. Janet, I'm really glad for your call. You used two terms, and I think we've defined uh, Victor white resentment. We, we've heard Carol say, and that is white resentment. We hear white privilege tossed around a lot. How would you define it? White privilege? I, I think that it is uh, the kind of um, advantages you get uh, by um, your white identity that uh, you don't uh, stand out for having a different race, having different ethnicity, uh, being immigrant, and so on, that you are seen as the normal um, and the default category. And I think that uh, uh, is a issue um, in terms of that hiddenness of uh, the, uh, the privileges that uh, people have. I, I like to uh, show my students one uh, study that really boils it down to, uh, for me, what this white privilege means. And this was a study by Diva Pager of uh, incarceration and its effect on employment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she found that uh, among uh, you know people with criminal records, uh, it's harder to get a job, obviously, right? But among whites with criminal records, they actually got more job callbacks in this one study than African-Americans without criminal records, right? I mean, just think about the importance and how race trumps all these other uh, kinds of, uh, uh, you know, these kinds of stigma that we deal with. So I think it's really real. I do think, though, that, uh, you know, there are huge issues that are confronting uh, the white community as well, too. It's particularly the white working class community uh, that we've been talking about uh, a bit as well. And I think more and more we're seeing their kind of economic fortunes mirror those of uh, people of color uh, who have come from disadvantaged groups. And and Carol, I have to that study that Victor just described Mm -hmm. here, I I can assume that the people that were doing the hiring and the callbacks were not saying openly to one another, we will not hire someone of color 
for this job. I, I, I want people to understand what the true subtlety is of, of the revelation of that study. What would you say? Um, it is, I mean, it, it is what Victor said. It's that white trumps all. If we understand that, I mean, so we've got, uh, there was another study that was done um, that dealt with racially identifiable names. And so they paired up similar experiences, similar education, similar um, expertise, and consistently the person who had the racially identifiable name, Jamal or Shaniqua, um, had to send in like twice as many resumes in order to get a call back. Now, these folks are, are apparently equal, but the sense of race and so the implicit biases in that are real. And, and those biases become systemic in terms of their inequality. And I, but I also wanted to get to one more point. Sure. And, and that was um, that whites are hurting too. Yes, they are. But the problem is, is that where the resentment and the political mobilization happens is not toward the source of what is creating their economic troubles. What what do you mean by that? And so that we have an economic policy and a tax policy that has taxed income, what you earn, but not taxed capital capital gains at nearly the amount. We have had a widening rift in terms of economic inequality between the top 1% and everybody else. We've had policies that are uh, extract investment, public investment out of public goods and out of the safety net and have privatized them. All of these mechanisms have exacerbated the the economic um, strength and wherewithal of the white community. But you don't get the anger at these policies and the politicians. Instead, you get the politics of resentment, that those black people are taking my job in this zero-sum game. Here's uh, exactly on Twitter here, a listener who is echoing what you're saying, Carol. Resentment is fundamentally an economic issue of the shrinking middle class redirected to minorities or immigration. Let me grab a call here real quick from Steve in Durham, North Carolina. Hi, Steve. I have just a couple of minutes, but I do want to hear from you. What are you thinking about? Uh, hi, I'm, uh, I'm also a United States Marine, and I'm currently a physician at Duke University. Uh-huh. I just wanted to say that um, I fully support the NFL players taking a knee. I think it's an expression of patriotism. It's absolutely an expression of their First Amendment rights. And I think that Quashing those abilities to speak freely is the anti-patriotic issue here. So I condemn utterly in completely unequivocal terms Trump's and Mnuchin's comments about the situation, uh-huh. and I commend the players for taking a courageous stand on this issue. Steve, good to have your call. I want to squeeze Ronald in California in here. Hi, Ronald. You're getting in on the end with the last word. Tell me what you want to say. I just wanted to piggyback on the white privilege thing. I'm a kid from Compton. I'm a truck driver now. And I just wanted to say from a black perspective, it's not, now that I'm driving trucks and getting to know a lot of people across the country, it's not something that's done on purpose to be, uh, to keep it white, so to speak. You know, when you're used to just doing the normal and going about business as usual, 
it's not about holding a black man down. It's just you're you're just used to dealing with who you're deal who you're comfortable with. And that's what I wanted to say. I, I'm glad you heard the show, Ronald. Thanks so much for calling in from California, Carol. Thank you. Really good to have your insight and and your experience in the conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you, Carrie. Victor, delightful to have you on the show. Really appreciated your insight here. Thank you. Thanks so much, Carrie. Victor Tan Chen with us today from Richmond, Virginia. Carol Anderson with us from Atlanta, Georgia. And I want to hear from you wherever you are. We can keep the conversation going. Here's how to reach me on Twitter, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M, as in Minnesota, P-R. Use that hashtag, flyoverradio. We'll continue the conversation on Twitter.